Hello and welcome to our podcast. My name is Lewis McDonald and I'm the head of the corporate division of Herbert Smith Freehills in Asia, based in Tokyo. And I'm Christopher Hunt, a partner in the disputes team here in Tokyo. And I'm Michael McAuley, a senior associate based here in Tokyo in the disputes team. Thanks, Chris and Michael. Well, today's part one of our new podcast series. Uh, we're looking at Brexit from the perspective of the Asian investor. Obviously, this is a very important issue and it's a timely uh, moment to be looking at this. Uh, we're going to be looking at various aspects of Brexit in our podcast episodes, and today we're looking at the current status of Brexit. Where are we at on the 28th of September 2018? But before we're looking at where we're at today, I want to go back to the 23rd of June 2016. Not only was that day my birthday, it was also the day that the British public voted to exit the European Union. And what a birthday present it was to receive. I remember what I was doing the day after that, when the votes were being counted. It was a Friday afternoon and I was working from home because I had to catch a flight to the US later in the day. And I had three screens open on my kitchen table. One for my work, of course. Uh, one checking the UK referendum results as they came in and one tracking the British pound. And it was really incredible to watch the pound as it responded to the result as it was coming in. First, it climbed up as the expected result looked like it was going to be delivered. And then, all of a sudden, it started to crash as it became clear which way the British public was looking to vote. In the end, more than 50% of the British public voted to leave the European Union, almost 52% to be, ex to be exact. And that was quite an unexpected result at the time, definitely not the result that most of the commentators were expecting, and certainly not the result that the Prime Minister, David Cameron, was expecting. In fact, he resigned almost immediately. Um, when the results were announced, there was initially shock and there were a lot of questions about what Brexit would mean. There was a large measure of uncertainty as to what it would mean as well. What was this thing called Brexit? When would it happen? And what would it mean for Britain, the EU and the rest of the world? Two years has passed since then, and the only certain we really have is that Brexit's going to happen on the 29th of March 2019, to be exact. Um, and we've been told by Theresa May that everyone just needs to get on with it and that Brexit means Brexit. But look, before looking at where we are right now, before looking at what happens next, I want to go back in time and I want to ask uh, Chris Hunt, um, how did we get to this point, Chris? How did we get to the British public voting for Brexit? Well, you're right. We do need to go back in time a bit. Um, Europe has been fighting amongst itself for a couple of thousand years and Sure for purposes have, yeah. of this podcast, I'm probably not going to go back that far. Okay, thank you. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but I think that we can go back um, into the post-war period and various European countries coming together, trading with each other, binding themselves together. The UK chose not to be a part of that. And it took a number of decades. It wasn't until, the until 1973 mm. that Britain decided to join the predecessor to the European Union. So it joins in 1973, but only two years later, the British people end up having a referendum, should they stay. So only two years later, they're already thinking twice mm, about it. A lot of people don't know that. No, no. So this is the one on your birthday a couple of years ago was the second mm. referendum. But the first time round, it was a convincing vote to stay. And so that was 67% saying yes. But the EU or the as I said, the predecessor to the EU back in the 70s. It was very different in the 70s to how it was in 2016. 
a lot happened in those 40 odd years between the two referendums. And I think it's fair to say that there was, there's been a lot of political and economic union um, within the EU. And you can see that in terms of a lot of laws being harmonized. You can see that in terms of uh, institutions like Parliament and European Parliament, Council of Ministers, all these things. And of course, you can see it in the euro itself, the single currency. Now, Britain um, joined in with a lot of these measures, but there are some areas where it definitely didn't. Mm-hmm. So the euro. Yeah, they still got the pound. They've still got the pound, still got the queen on the, on the money. Um, and so they, the British government of the day decided not to join the euro. Now, we can debate whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but that's the decision they made. And more broadly, they, the British government went a little bit slower. So you can kind of, I sometimes think of it as being a bit like a, a motorway, freeway, expressway, whatever you want to call it, where you are, with Britain kind of going in the slow lane, mm. and then all of the other European countries going a bit faster and overtaking it. And so we kind of reached this period over time with people in the UK getting, or some people getting mm. uncomfortable mm. Yeah. with the way that it was happening, and pressure built. Yeah, yeah. And David Cameron, the previous Prime Minister, felt, well, I've got to, I've got to deal with this issue and uh, have a referendum. Okay. So, look, we can recognise these factors, as you've said, Britain going at a slightly different pace yep. in relation to the European project compared mm-hmm. with some of the other major European nations. Um, and we can recognise that, as I said. But why did the British public vote the way that they did on the 23rd of June 2016? I think a lot of different reasons. I don't think any two people would have precisely the same. I mean, for some people, it was about um, taking control back. There was mm. this sort of feeling that European Union was dominating too much in terms of British laws. Some people thought, well, European people can move easily in and out of the country. Uh, that's, that's one key facet of the EU, this free movement of people alongside free movement of services, goods, and, and capital. So some people thought, well, Britain's a rich country and people are coming from other countries. And so that's, that's a problem for some people. And others thought, well, everyone in the EU pays into the membership, like a membership fee, and the richer countries pay more. Mm, yeah. Some people had an issue with that. Yeah. But no matter how... I, I think more broadly, some people weren't really clear what the EU did and what it meant. And I think that um, this sort of well-known anecdote, which is in the weekend after the referendum, the top Google search in the UK is, what is the European Union? Would have, would have been good if that was maybe before maybe the referendum. Maybe done the before, yeah. Isn't, yeah, isn't that incredible? Because I think it's important to recognise the, um, the length of time in the EU. I guess it's 45 years. At the minute, yeah. At the minute and counting. 46 years maybe when the exit occurs. And just the extent of the trading relationship, you know, the, the, the two-way trade between the EU and the UK is measured in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, you know, the UK exports around £230 billion pounds, mm. uh, worth of goods and services to the EU in 2015, and the UK imported £291 billion pounds worth of goods and services from the EU mm. in that year. So the EU runs a very hefty trade surplus into the UK. I know that the UK... 
uh, exports more services yeah. into the EU than it receives back in return. Yeah, I, I think yeah, we should definitely split up this yeah. trade surplus. But, but the goods, the goods surplus, oh, yeah. um, from the EU into the UK is really massive. That's something um, quite fundamental. And in, and in looking at how much uh, trade that accounts for, it's it's almost fifty percent of all mm. of the trade in and out of the UK. So the UK is quite um, it's quite tied up uh, with the EU. And of course, as you mentioned, in terms of the laws that come down from Europe into the UK. There's a lot of European laws that obviously apply in the UK. So there's a real tight bind between the UK and the EU. But the British public, notwithstanding all of that, still voted to to exit. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so that kind of takes us up to till June. Yes. Obviously, a lot's happened since then. Yeah, why don't you talk us through what's actually happened since then, Chris? Well, if you imagine the timeline, we've got June 2016, yeah, and then as you go along, probably the next big date is March 2017. Okay, what so, happened then, Chris? So on March 2017, um, the two-year negotiating window opened. So what happened was Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, submitted a notice which says we're starting this two-year window. Okay, why two years, Chris? That sounds like a, a long time. To, to exit. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it begs the question, well, what are, what are they negotiating? Can't the UK just leave? Well, it's it's kind of complicated. You said it yourself, Lewis, there's, the UK is very tightly bound to the EU, a lot of laws, part of the institutions mm, of the mm. EU. So in this two-year window, they've got to achieve two big things. Mm-hmm. One is so-called withdrawal agreement. Okay. And so this is, if you kind of imagine a couple divorcing. Okay, so like the terms of the exit. Yeah, exactly. You get the house, you get the car. Right. But in this case, it's how much is Britain going to pay the EU okay. for um, the, its contribution towards liabilities. And that's going to be between 40 and 50 billion pounds. That's it's already been agreed. And another thing that's already been agreed is a transition period after the UK leaves the EU so that there's kind of a, a gentle exit. So that's okay. the withdrawal. Just on what's yeah. the transition period, Chris? Yeah, so it's a period after the UK leaves the EU. When is that? Well, that's at the end of the two-year negotiating window. Okay. So the notice went in in March 2017, 29th of March, and the two years expires on the 29th of March 2019. Yeah. So that's six Six months Around tomorrow. six months from now, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So on that date, the UK is going to leave the EU. But instead of having just a sort of, uh, let's say, dramatic exit, there's going to be a sort of a gradual transition. So right. for a period until the end of 2020, the UK is going to have a lot of the same rights as it has now, right. like free movement of goods and services. But it's just not going to be a member of the EU. It's not going to have a vote. Okay. So, so, so that's that's if if they reach agreement, and yeah. they're in the process of trying yeah. to reach agreement. Can you talk us more a bit, talk us through a bit more about the process itself? Yeah, sure. So um, to get to those kinds of tentative agreements on this transition period and the money, yeah, uh, and the other parts of the divorce, they're also they've been having lots of meetings and. They've been also talking about, well, what is the future relationship between the UK and the EU going to look like? Okay. So lots of summits, lots of negotiating between the UK and the EU. And if we kind of go back to our timeline, yes, six months left, In we've got a number of 
uh, summits that are going to be coming up. Okay. Um, okay. In, in the next few months, and I think we'll we'll come on to talk but about let's, that let's in episode two. Yeah, sure. But let's go back to you know what has actually been proposed by the UK to the EU. What 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 are they what are they looking for in their withdrawal deal, Chris? And and how's that been responded to by the EU? Well, the UK government put um, a proposal together this summer. Okay. It took quite a while to get there. Is that the uh, the checkers proposal that yeah, we've been hearing so, about in the media recently? So, so-called checkers. So Theresa okay. May's got... Why is it called the checkers proposal? Well, because she's got a lovely house in the country. It was called checkers. Oh, good for her. And yeah, that was good for her. And what she did is she got all of the cabinets um, around to her country house for a bit of a, an away day. Okay. And they had... Um, she presented this deal to the cabinet and said, if you want to be a part of the cabinet, then you need to sign up to this. So some okay. high-profile members could Okay, so this is this. the deal that Boris Johnson and some of the other ministers didn't yeah. like, and they resigned That's uh, right. from their positions. Obviously, they're still in the parliament, but they yeah. resigned from their positions That's because right. of this deal. That's that one. That's, that's okay. the same one. All right. But so this deal, this so-called Chequers deal, Theresa May presented this to the EU. And um, so... What is in this? Yeah, what's in that deal? Basically, it's it's a kind of like a customs deal. Okay. And so, the um, the UK government would ex- be a tariff collector on behalf of the EU. So let's say that you're based out here in Asia. Yeah. And you are um, importing goods into Europe, and let's say that you import them into the UK. The UK will collect tariffs if um, and if they stay, if the good stays in the UK, but then if the goods go on into the EU, okay. it's going to hand over some tariffs to the EU. All right. So it's, it's called a facilitated customs arrangement. But I think that that's that's one area. Look, the European Union didn't like that, and this is right, one of right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you yeah. what the main um, sticking points are because obviously we all know that there is no deal that's been reached as at this moment. Yeah, and but they are in the process of negotiating and they're going back and forth and you know the press is telling us a bit about that each day. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask what are the what are really the key sticking points in that deal you know, on both sides? Sure. So I think there's there's two main sticking points. Uh, so the first one is, is about this custom. Okay. And so um, as far as the British government is concerned um, this works well. Um, we've got uh, the UK government can still have this good relationship with goods. They thought that maybe the EU might agree to it because the EU, as we talked about earlier, exports more goods yes. than the UK does. Yes, and it also um, helps uh, the UK achieve a goal that it has on Northern Ireland, which maybe Michael can come yeah. on to in a minute. Yeah. But to finish the point on customs. The European Union um, has isn't keen on it because there are these these four special freedoms that the single market is based on. So it's it's the freedom of movement of goods. Mm-hmm. So um, no tariffs and just moving yes, across yes. borders. Services. So um, you can be a bank in any country and have a license to operate anywhere. Yeah. Capital. So free flow of money. And then also people. Yes. So, so it's a package of freedoms. So it, it's, it's a package. And what the EU was concerned about was cherry picking. Okay, okay. And... Um, Itokodori, as they call it in Japan. It is specifically in Japan. Uh, that's a good bit of Japanese knowledge there. <laughs> uh, but I think that um, uh, 
the EU was was very very clear that Britain couldn't have one bit without accepting the others. Okay, and so um, the uh, I think it was Donald Tusk, who's the um, president of the European Council. He, his Instagram account um, is is a must follow because um, he kind of uh, will put these photos out which will represent the state of the negotiations. And after Theresa May's plan was rejected, he uh, had a picture, a photo of a cake. Okay. And it says, no, no cherries, Theresa May. Right, right. So it's the point about you can't just have one part of this deal, Theresa May. Yeah. You've got to take it all. So you can't just pick the cherries out of the freedoms. You've got to take, it's all or nothing. You've got, you've got, to, take, you've got to take it all. Okay. So, so that's, as far as the EU is concerned, that's a big sticking okay, okay. point. But I think there's, yeah, there's a bigger one, which yeah. I don't think a lot of people over this way probably no, have a feel no. for. Well, Michael, can we bring you in to talk about the other major sticking point, which is the, the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland? Can you tell us a bit more about why is that so meaningful in this negotiation? Why is it such a big sticking point, particularly for the United Kingdom? Sure, Lewis. Uh, I think back in June 2016, no one was expecting mm. Northern Ireland uh, and the Irish border question to be the roadblock that it has turned into, uh, given that Northern Ireland represents a, a relatively small mm. uh, portion of the UK's economy as a whole. Um, the EU, uh, in its proposals, has suggested a uh, a border in the Irish Sea, so that's the, the sea between mm. uh, uh, England and Northern Ireland. Uh, and as a result of that, the rules, uh, the EU rules that are uh, applicable in the Republic of Ireland and will continue to be uh, applicable there would also apply to Northern Ireland. Okay. So essentially you would have one set of rules in Northern Ireland uh, and another set of rules in the United Kingdom. Mm. And, and similar to how the EU is concerned about the single market being cherry-picked. Uh, the United Kingdom government also doesn't want uh, its internal uh, market, if you will, being mm, picked mm, apart mm. in the same way. Why, why um, is the United Kingdom so concerned about there being this um, sea border, if you like, between um, Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom? Well, I, I think there are a couple of facets to that. The, the first is a, a, a political one. Uh, Theresa May held a snap election in 2017 uh, where she actually lost her majority in the UK Parliament and as a result of that she's now relying on uh, members of Parliament from a Northern Irish party called the Democratic Unionist Party mm -hmm. and that party has as one of its core uh, policies stronger links between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United yeah, Kingdom yeah. Uh, so there's a certain political reality to that yeah. um, the second facet is uh, <coughs> the, 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 Scot the Scottish um, question. Of, of, of course, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure you remember, Lewis, uh, a couple of years ago, Scotland held its referendum. I do remember. I'm, I mean, I'm originally from Scotland myself, and I was, uh, I was in Scotland uh, shortly before that. I remember asking a lot of my family members uh, what they thought about that, but we won't go into their responses. But back, back to you, Michael. <laughs> um, Perhaps then you'll remember as well that the, the outcome of that referendum I do remember, yes. was 55-45 uh, roughly to, to stay in the United Kingdom. Uh, in the referendum in June 2016 on whether to stay part of the European Union, mm. uh, Scotland, if you take it on its own, uh, much like Northern Ireland, I should yes. add, 
uh, voted to remain part mm, of the European Union. Mm. So they're pro-Europe in Scotland and in Northern Ireland. That, that's right. Mm, mm. Um, so Scotland is, is paying very close attention to what's going on in Northern Ireland yes. to see if there is a possibility for some sort of quasi-membership uh, of the European mm. Union or, or at least staying uh, being able to retain That's very interesting. Benefits. I'm sure they're watching the, uh, the negotiation very closely to see what sorts of terms are ultimately going to eventuate. So they can see, you know, what, what impact it's going to have on them and maybe how they then take things um, forward in, into the future. That's right. Yeah. And, 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 and Theresa May is also um, watching that very closely yeah. Yeah. Uh, in case she yeah. ends up being the Prime Minister uh, that sees the breakup yeah. of the United Kingdom. But coming back to the Northern Irish question, because I guess that is the live issue. That's where the actual border is, if you like, or future border will be between <clears throat> the EU and the UK. What are some of the practical difficulties... Um, you know, with the, the EU and the UK's position when looked at in relation to the border uh, there between Northern Ireland and Ireland. That, that, that's right. So when uh, the Republic of Ireland, when it uh, exited the United Kingdom um, back in the early 20th century, um, there was a, a, essentially an international border that was set up between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, however, almost immediately there was a... a an area set up called the Common Travel Area, which allowed people to cross the border freely without border checks, mm, passport mm, checks. Mm. Uh, and the border is um, is relatively porous, so it's quite easy for, for goods to yes. uh, come from, one, from the yeah. Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland. Which is okay now, right? Because they're both in the EU. That's right. Mm. That's right. Um, and also back then, the, the volume of trade that would have been moving between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland would have been quite small. Yes. Um, it's not entirely clear if that would still be the case today. Yes. Um, so the, uh, the, the issue, some of the practical issues that Theresa May uh, faces with her proposal yes. um, relates to how, um, how the border would be manned. Yep. Uh, some of the suggestions have been for a, a technologically advanced border using surveillance cameras um, that would avoid the need to have customs officials carrying out checks. Yeah, um, yeah. There's also, uh, I think, a political impetus to keep the friction between the two uh, yeah, countries as, yeah, as low yeah. as possible. No, I mean, I, I don't mean to labour the Northern Irish point, but I think it's important to recognise how significant a point it is in the context of the overall negotiation. Obviously, the history there is one that we're all aware of. We know how hard the people of um, Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom have worked to get the relationship to where it is today. Uh, and... And we know the sacrifice that's been made to get there. So we can see that that really is a, a bit of a red line, if you like, in the negotiating um, position of, right. of the UK. That's and right. and that, that makes things very difficult. But just, just back to you, Chris, I mean, on the European side, do you see any red lines or do, do you see any other factors that are of great significance in the position of the EU? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think the key one is um, a deterrence, if you want to call it. Mm. The UK... Um, voted to leave and there's a chance that others could take the same view in the future now nobody ever thought before it actually happened that this was going to happen everybody was thinking the other way how is the EU going to grow Yes. but after the financial crisis big problems with Greece and other economies there was thought well could someone actually ever leave the club Yeah. and I suppose if I was the EU I would think well okay the UK is going if I do a deal which is too good for the UK, mm. 
then other countries might be tempted to do the same. Because you can, you can kind of imagine a situation where um, a country says, well, look, there's a lot of things I don't like about the EU. Hey, Britain got a good deal. They were able to get rid of the bad stuff as they saw it and just have some good stuff to mm, cherry pick. Mm. So that's why I think the, the cherry picking aspect is so important. Yeah. So I think that the EU is going to want to take a, a firm line to try and keep the keep the market together, the yes. single market. Yes. No, I, I can I see that. I mean, obviously the Northern Ireland point, you know, a massive um, point on many levels on the UK side and on the EU side. The fact that they can't let any EU member leave easily because you know there's obviously a very strong interest to keep the European project going, mm. and in fact to go to, to go even faster. To use your analogy um, from earlier, mm. and so there are these kind of limits, if you like, on on each side, and then the cherry picking point being, if you like, linked to how easy it is to leave the EU. Um, so yeah, you can see that um, it's a difficult negotiation. It's a very interesting negotiation. But we have to recognise, I think, the fundamental um, economics of the UK's involvement with the EU. As we mentioned, the hundreds and billions of pounds of trade, the sheer percentage of trade in goods and services that the EU comprises for the UK in terms of the total global trade, these are real things. And I think these are ultimately going to set some sort of a limit on how far the EU can go in making things tough for the UK, bearing in mind all those emotional factors. But as, uh, as all of us who have been involved in a lot of negotiations know, these things don't always go according to plan. Anyway, I think that's been a really interesting discussion. Hopefully the, those listening now are up to speed uh, with where the Brexit process is at as of the 28th of September 2018. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to look at, well, what happens from here? What sort of deals are possible and what sort of outcomes may eventuate? Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.